This is attorney Andy Mark and telling attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? It's always going good, man. We're alive. We're on the planet. I, You know, really, to me, that's a pretty good sign. I suppose there are a few spots on the planet at the moment that uh, aren't so great, but uh, we're not in one of those spots. So great. But even the worst places on the planet today are better than the best places on the planet 100 years ago, 200 years ago. It's always the point, man. Everything's about perspective. I, lo- I love exactly. I love starting out with a nice positive attitude whenever talking about the subjects like what we're going to be talking about today. You just if you lead with that positivity, it tends to lend itself to uh, to a good discussion, I totally, think. Totally, 100%. So what we're going to do right now is give you a brief summary of what the Live and Let Live movement is all about. If you want to skip it because you've seen it eight million times because you're a regular viewer of this podcast. No worries. Here's a little timestamp that you can just click on and you'll uh, skip right past it. But for those of you who are unfamiliar or who are sadists and want to hear us go over it again, um, here's what it's all about. The Live and Let Live movement is really trying to achieve peace. And so how do we achieve peace in the world? What a tall order that is. Uh, Well, the only way uh, we propose is that you have to live and you have to let live. Okay, well, that's a nice little uh, phrase, nice little sentiment there. But what does that really mean? Well, what we're really talking about in this movement is two types of rules, okay? There are all kinds of rules in life. There are things that we might call laws. These are things that if you do them, well, there's going to be a formal sanction by your community. You know, some, some easy ones that come to mind, theft or murder or assault, punching somebody in the face, all obvious stuff, right? So, yeah, legal rules are those rules that if you break them, well, there's going to be a punishment. There's going to be a formal sanction. These are legal rules. Well, what defines a legal rule? We believe what a legal rule should be is the least common denominator. The least common denominator. What do we mean by that? Well, it's where you actually aggress against someone else. So what's aggression? Well, think about uh, using force against somebody else. That's obviously aggression. Now, this is not uh, self-defense. That's a different thing entirely. That's a response to aggression. Of course, competent adults can defend themselves against force, but initiating the force is where we draw the line. There should be a legal consequence, a formal sanction. Another way that you might aggress, uh, commit fraud on somebody, illegally coerce somebody, or do anything to create a substantial risk of harm to your fellow man. So in other words, think about creating a substantial danger, such as reckless driving while impaired by alcohol or firing a gun indiscriminately uh, into the air. These types of things create substantial risks. So all those things that I just mentioned, We say in the Live and Let Live movement, there should be a societal formal consequence for. But if it doesn't fall into that category, well, it belongs in a different category. We like to call this the moral rules or the Live and Let Live ethical principle. These are things like be a good human, that you should be open-minded and you should be tolerant to one another. We should be dedicated to finding the truth and finding the facts. We should be civil, civility. We should engage in voluntary kindness. All these things are important moral principles and important moral rules. If you violate these types of rules, well, there is going to be a sanction per se, but it's more of a social sanction, right? It's a societal sanction. If you decide to be a jerk to everybody and close-minded and raise and non-tolerant and not engage in any sort of charity or goodwill with your fellow man, well, there's going to be social consequences, but you have the right to be left alone. We may try to talk you out of it, 
We may try to uh, convince you to be a moral person voluntarily, but at the end of the day, if it's not causing aggression to somebody else, it should be left out of the law and relegated to a moral realm. They're still important questions, still very important questions, and we got a lot to say about them because we're not just a freedom movement, we're a peace movement. And to get to peace, you need both of these sets of rules. So really what we're saying is, if you want to get to a peaceful society, there's a price of admission. Not only do you live, but you got to let live. The live and the let live, especially the let live, that's not an option. There's going to be a formal sanction against you. But if you choose to totally disregard the moral rules, we're going to defend your right to do so. You're just not part of our movement, right? So that's the important thing is figuring out first, whenever there an issue comes up, which world does it belong in? Does it belong in the legal world? Are we talking about imposing it by the law? Or does it belong in the moral world? Now, let me solidify it for you in a couple of examples. Take drug use, right? This is a big hot-button issue these days. Um, let's pick one. Fentanyl. Fentanyl. Awful, awful drug right now. There's a scourge on society, right? We hear about this all the time. Right now in the United States, it's the number one cause, a natural cause of death for young adults age 18 to 35. Seems like a horrible pandemic of fentanyl going through the country. Fentanyl use. Should this be in the legal realm or the moral realm? Let's take a look at it. Is the person initiating force against somebody if they're using fentanyl? Well, no, not necessarily, as long as they're just using it, say, in their own home and not going out into the community. Are they uh, engaging in fraud, coercion? Uh, no, no. Are they creating a su substantial risk to anybody when it's just somebody in their own home doing it? No. The answer is no. So this does not belong in the legal realm in this context. It belongs in the moral realm. And we're going to have a lot to say to you about your fentanyl use. We're going to try to talk you out of it. We're going to say maybe it's immoral. Maybe you have higher potential, things like that. But you can disregard completely our admonitions on these things, right? Because as long as you're not aggressing against your fellow man, it should be legal. But there are lots of things where you could twist this scenario, just a little tweak to this scenario, and all of a sudden we would argue it belongs in the legal realm. So let's say that that same person who uses the fentanyl then, while impaired, gets behind the wheel of a vehicle and goes out into the world swerving across the road, creating a substantial risk and a danger to their fellow human beings. Well, now we want to get involved. Now we want to say you have aggressed against other people, and therefore the conduct should be illegal. There should be a formal sanction. Let's say that that same person has, and this is might be relevant to today's topic that we're going to talk about today. Let's say that that same person using the fentanyl has different legal duties going on. Maybe they're not just in charge of taking care of themselves. Maybe they have a child and maybe using that fentanyl is creating a substantial risk to that child, either because they're sitting around all day, not uh, going and keeping the pantry stocked with food, or they're creating a substantial harm or risk to their child. Well, at that point, now they're aggressing against another human being, and we do believe that there should be a formal sanction. So all this is about is figuring out which category of rules a given issue belongs in, um, and then feeding it through this process. Are they creating aggression? Are they aggressing against their fellow man? If not, it should be in the moral realm. Both sets of rules are so important, and both sets of rules are necessary to get to peace. So if you want to learn more about this, go to liveandletlive.org. Got lots of information about it, and we'll even link uh, down there. If, if that short summary wasn't enough for you and you want to learn even more about these principles, Mark and I did an excruciatingly long hour and 20-minute deep dive into every aspect of this philosophy and this movement.
Yeah, and you know, it's great sitting here listening to you summarize it because it's not so quick to summarize, is it? It's You got to kind of run down a few things. Yeah, I mean, I like giving uh, concrete examples to help yeah. people kind of wrap their heads around I, it. I like what we, on the last show, remember we talked about when somebody said, I'm against marijuana use. And I, and I always related how I always scratch my head to that question. I mean, are you against it for you or are you against it for me, right? Because it's really about who who gets to make the decision for me. That's really the question. And, uh, you know, what I thought you were going to say about the fentanyl was the minor, right? Because, I mean, obviously, look, sorry, you're a minor. Uh, there are some decisions you don't get to make. You have a guardian called a parent. Now, these concepts are not difficult no, for people not. to grasp no. or to practice. In fact, the vast majority of people practice by these principles in their interactions day to day with their fellow human beings. But, Mark, you know what I'm going to say here, where we tend to lose people, where yeah. we tend to lose people on this beautifully succinct and really self-evident principle is when people start forming groups, when people start calling themselves groups, when they get enough people together so that they think they can now engage in aggression. Why do they think that? I don't I understand. Don't, I have no idea, but... This is exactly the problem when enough people get together and now have pronounced themselves something like a corporation, for example. What we're saying and we are asserting is that group of people does not get to engage in aggression. Just because they got enough people to believe in it doesn't mean that they can violate these principles. And this, yep, in, this You're definitely go applies. You're gonna go I'm going to go all the way to the top. This, this applies to the biggest group of people at all. The government. What if they're wearing a badge, though? Do they get too aggressive if they're wearing a badge? We don't care if you're wearing a badge, if you have a nice hat, if you have a uniform, if you uh, have uh, given yourself a fancy title. But furthermore, we don't care about the color of your skin. Yeah. We don't care who you choose to love. Nope. We don't care uh, what songs you sing or what foods you eat or what holidays you observe. Everybody and every group and every individual is subject to these principles. That's what the Live and Let Live movement is all about. Nice summary, brother. All right, it. let's uh, get our guest involved right now. So we have Catherine Celery, and she is the CEO and founder of the Conscious Parenting Revolution. So we're going to talk about one of our favorite subjects today, which is the importance of good parenting, I'm sure. Let's get her on. Catherine, how are you doing today? I'm great. And I really enjoyed your summary of the live and let live because I haven't heard it before. <laughs> so good. Excellent. First time you ever heard it. It was. It was great. It was succinct. And it definitely, you know, sort of opened up a lot of thoughts in my head. Yeah. What's so interesting about it is it doesn't we didn't get Andy's personal opinion on any particular issue, did we? It doesn't really matter what Andy's opinion is on any of these things. It's just about Andy gets to decide for Andy. Mark gets to decide for Mark and Catherine gets to decide for Catherine. Like, that's the important question, right? I mean, we can have fun yeah. talking about these things. Should you use marijuana? Should you gamble? What should how should you run your life? These are all fun things. Even, you know, parenting. These are great things to talk about. But the question of who gets to decide for you. That's really the yeah. first thing we got to figure out, right? And we think you should decide. We were radical on, in this uh, podcast. We think Catherine is in charge of Catherine. I mean, I know that's a crazy idea for some people. And Mark's in charge of Mark and Andy's in charge of Andy. Well, I mean, it's wonderful. I talk a lot in the Conscious Parenting Revolution about autonomy and autonomy rights for children. So, you know, you're opening up a huge area of my interest, which is when do we allow children to have autonomy rights? Uh, it's an excellent, very hard question. Yeah, fun to discuss. Before we dive in head first, why don't you just tell our uh, listeners what the Conscious Parenting Revolution is all about? 
I'd love to. So the conscious parenting revolution is a way to see your children's behaviors without focusing on the surface behaviors. So if we reflect on behaviors and everybody I know is thinking about, okay, like what are behaviors? What are behaviors? And if I explain behavior to myself, how do I do that? So that I would just open that up to the audience as you're thinking about this. So when we look at behaviors generally, we rarely just describe them as though we were an observer looking at the behavior in a neutral fashion. We tend to have an evaluation of the behavior, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. And this kind of goes back into a little bit of what Andy was talking about when he was giving his introduction. So the conscious parenting revolution focuses on looking at be behaviors if they're disturbing to the family system or to others, but primarily I work within the family. If you're looking at the behavior as a disruptive behavior, then do we see that behavior as the manifestation of an unmet need? So I'll let that sink in because that's what I help people look to see behaviors as. It's presenting, it may be inconvenient for you, it may not be inconvenient for you, it may be inconvenient for other people, it may be disruptive. So this kind of gets in that category you guys were talking about of when is it a problem for me and when is it okay to live and let live? At what point does it cross the line and it becomes my problem? So at some stage, we as parents look at our children's behaviors and usually we assign a value that's respectful or disrespectful. It's okay or not okay. Um, it's, um, it's misbehavior. It's naughty. It's um, something wrong. And in the conscious parenting revolution, we say, put all the judgments aside. Look at it as a presenting problem in a breadcrumb. It's a breadcrumb to reveal the underlying social and emotional situation of the person expressing the behavior. Some people look at this as a trauma-informed perspective. Some people might say adverse childhood experience and disorders are different, but when people are suffering, they don't do it politely, usually. So the expression of suffering is usually socially unacceptable and it's disruptive to systems, family systems, school systems, other systems. And if we focus on it as the underlying unmet needs are giving rise to the tragic expression in this, that, and the other behavior, then we go to the source of the underlying unmet need. And we're concerned about supporting someone and being able to meet their needs because the minute we do that, all of the behaviors that reflect the underlying unmet need disappear. It's like a magic act. Now we can go around working on the basis of all the symptoms. So when people can't meet their needs, all these symptoms arise that reveal that underlying state and condition. So I work with parents to work at the source of the problem, supporting their children to be able to regulate their emotions, to be able to calm themselves down through things like meditation, to be able to become centered and grounded through lots of different practices, one of which is the capacity to begin to see yourself as the observer, as opposed to being merged with your thoughts and feelings. A conscious parent is aware of their own dysfunctional patterns that have been brought down through the family systems and may be coming through them in their own family and not making themselves wrong, bad, or ashamed, but just being responsible for them. Like, oh my gosh, I'm recognizing that this is a pattern that's contributing to a lot of dysfunction in our family. I didn't even realize I was doing it because I've been asleep in these transgenerational patterns because my family before me and before them and before them, and so it goes. And it's been passed down through the ages. I'm just awakening 
to the fact that this way of communicating and being with each other isn't life-giving. And so, gosh, let's do what we can to heal. And let's have healing and reconciliation around those patterns that are really dysfunctional. So it's an awakening to the things that are passing through us that we may not have any insight into until we do. And when we do, we wake up and we're just like responsible, not ashamed, no fault, no blame, no guilt, no shame gives us the ability to just be responsible. Let's take this forward in the right way. I can see from the past harm has been done. I don't want to continue in that way. And I certainly don't want you to. So let's move forward in ways that are very respectful of one another and are also understanding of the underlying unmet needs. So that's kind of what the conscious parenting revolution is about. I want to respond. I'm wrapping my head around it, and I think that there's some brilliant points in there. There's some wonderful insights in there. If I understand it correctly, so in if one were to embrace th- this type of approach to uh, suffering, you, you talked about manifestations of suffering, rather than, I, I think what you're trying to argue is rather than seeing conduct or behavior in the child as bad or good behavior, um, it should be more of a dialogical or communicative process where you're identifying why, and you're looking at the underlying behavior rather than saying, that's bad, and we want them to act good, actually listening to the to the behavior and responding to it because it's a manifestation of a, some sort of underlying unmet need. Is that fair? You've got it. I mean, Andy, that's a really good wrap-up. The And let's go one step further. So when we usually, I would say, the consciousness collectively is that when you see the thing that you, you label as the mom or dad or maybe somebody else labels as wrong, the idea is to punish in order for them to learn from their bad behavior that it's unacceptable to get a change in behavior. So the idea is not to focus on the fact that it's the manifestation of an unmet need, but to just focus on the fact that if you're going to drown, do it politely. We're not going to give you the skills to manage your inner world, but we're going to let you know you can't present it this way. And so rewards and punishments are usually the modality that we go about evoking the types of changes in behavior that we want. However, here's the big news. What we know, and there's a lot of research on this, Thomas Gordon was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times based on the research that when you use that power controlling approach to dealing with quote unquote disruptive behaviors, you activate the three R's, retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. These three R's account for, Dr. Louise Porter's research, account for 75% of behavioral disruptions. So now that we know that, Three out of four of the behavioral problems that we'd like to erase are activated by the controlling form of discipline that we're using to address the initial issue. So we create what we call secondary problems. So we got that original problem, the way a child responded to a disappointment or was tired and you know just fell apart and toxic yucky ways to be around. And we then, maybe they say, I hate you, mommy. I hate you, daddy. I hate you, brother. I hate you this. I hate you that. Things that we don't want to hear. And so we respond to those words and sometimes behaviors, kicking the dog, kicking the sister, kicking the brother, all those kinds of behaviors that we don't want to see. And we come down hard on them in order to make them understand it's unacceptable. And because we're not dealing with the original underlying unmet need to begin with, now they're so hurt that they're not seen, heard, and understood from their perspective that they then lash out 
in one or all of the three R's, which we then now come down even harder on. And then we create what's called the cycle of anger and defiance. It's a dance. And the dance can get so out of control, which is why one of my TED Talks is on the rebellion is here. We created it and we can solve it. And the implications of that rebellion, I propose in my TED Talk, go all the way into school shootings. We can see where this rebellion is here. We created it. We can solve it in many ways, where if we want to talk about how people drown, it's always socially unacceptable. It's always messy and it's a big splash. And we can focus on that, or we can focus on the fact that all of that's happening because of this underlying unmet need, which we can see individually on the micro and the macro. I loved how you said how the child responded to the disappointment. Not It yeah. wasn't the disappointment that was the issue. It was how yeah. the child responded to the disappointment, right? It's not really the issue uh, that occurred. It's not the fact of what happened. It's the child's present thinking about that past event. That's the issue. And I heard Got you it. earlier when you made a point about being the observer and not identifying with thoughts. We should, yeah. ta- we should talk about your use of med- the M word meditation here yeah. to help children make better decisions to first of all recognize that they're in charge of the decisions that they make that how they that look the world's going to happen getting them to first see that you get to make a choice here about how you're going to respond to what's happening out there in the world to pause and say wait a second let me put the pause button on hold on let's have a quick break here how do you want to respond here? You know, this I do this sometimes in my own life. Something happens and I press pause. I've already, this is the victory by pressing pause, right? Now I say, huh, well, I've been angry before. I don't really enjoy that very much. I've been happy before. I like that a lot better. Let me intentionally choose to be happy by starting where Andy started, with perspective at the very beginning. Yeah. And I always, this reminds me of my wife. I, I so married up. I wish you could meet my wife. She's fantastic. <laughs> but my, my wife comes from a third world nation, Burma. And, oh, okay. uh, and she's, she's climbed all the way up to, she's a cardiologist. And wow. she says to me all the time, whenever I'm, you know, going off about some kind of problem, she always just turns to me and says, Mark, that sounds like a first world problem right there. <laughs> and it, re- it reminds me about how privileged I am to even have such a problem in the first place. And that immediately changes my perspective on the situation. It's so true. Right? It's so true. This is what we got to teach our kids, not just our kids, the kids walking around in adult, fully grown bodies who are living among us, who do exactly the same thing in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s until they die. They never figured out that they were actually in charge of themselves. Yeah, my yeah. one of my very first thoughts uh, here was that this seems instructive of how we should deal with our fellow adults, right? I mean, isn't this quite instructive? It's learning rather than just seeing conduct or human behavior as bad or good in our own subjective analysis. Take it as communication. This is a dialogue. This is a chance to understand and uh, and communicate with a fellow human being. Dr. Michael Edelstein, a uh, psychologist who's also an author. Do you know Edelstein? He's, uh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Well, he's a big supporter of Live and Let Live as well. He's our chapter leader up in Northern California. And uh, nice. he makes the point all the time. He says, look, Mark, uh, 
nobody's perfect. You're not perfect. You are an imperfect human. He made me really comfortable with saying, you know what? I'm an imperfect guy. I'm, I'm striving for excellence and even perfection sometimes, but I know that's not possible. And as an imperfect person, I actually act imperfectly sometimes. When I do mm-hmm. this, I, I have an opportunity, right? I have an opportunity to teach other people what you do when you act imperfectly, right? I say, hey, I made a big, this is what I taught my kids. They witnessed plenty of mistakes of mine. I didn't try to pretend I was perfect. And especially on the big ones, I say, hey, you guys see that big mistake dad just made? Learn from that mistake that I just made. Think about what I did. I'm not a perfect person. You're going to make mistakes. How are we going to respond to it? I can tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean up a mess if I made a mess. I'm going to take responsibility for that mess. I'm going to learn about that, and I'm going to improve going forward. That, that's what I taught my kids. That's what we need to. That's how we need to interact with each other. This isn't just about kids. This is about communicating well, with other human beings. It really is, and at a, to a certain extent, it is a shift in consciousness. It's a shift in perspective around behavior. Period. Yeah. Um, whether it's adult behavior or child behavior. It is a compassionate way to live. So it's a choice. It's also a choice if we look at behavior. And that's why I said, you know, from the very beginning, I want people to be thinking about like, what's their perspective of behavior? How do they describe it to themselves? What do they think about when they see it? Some people haven't thought about this. So it might be kind of an aha moment for people to begin to look into, well, maybe I don't even think about behavior other than I just am so in tune with my evaluations mm-hmm. of behavior. You know, Krishnamurti said that evaluate that observation without evaluation is the highest form of human intelligence. So the idea of being the observer, yeah, right? right? What something we were talking about a minute ago, Mark, being the observer without evaluating, it doesn't mean that we're not looking at all of the things that I call them the breadcrumbs that are surfacing here and there, various behaviors that are popping onto the surface that some of which make sense, some don't. But then, you know, the famous sort of Indian proverb, until you've walked a mile in somebody's moccasins, we don't know what it's like from inside them. So who am I to evaluate their presentation? Other than I can say those people who are more and more skilled with managing their inner world are more and more capable of being able to present to the outer world, a reflection of what's happening internally through their words. And those who don't know how to do that, and I would say even the most skilled people that I know who know how to do that can't always do it. They also are overwhelmed by emotion from time to time. It's part of our human experience. But those who are able to be able to express it in a way that other people find acceptable, I call it the people who know how to drown politely, they have probably been practicing those skills for a long time. Yeah, or even to disconnect from it, right? Yeah, to sort of that's un- true too. To unhook from the entire experience. I mean, some things that you you want to ride the wave, you want to identify with that, and I, you know, the positive things that happen. Like I tell you know, sometimes uh, my wife, who is a Buddhist from um, Burma. And uh, she's a Theravada Buddhist and she meditates. And I've had the pleasure of really learning about Buddhism uh, from talking to her about this. But, um, you know, we talk about this idea sometimes of when we're somewhere wonderful, really peaceful, some great setting. And she says, this is a great place to meditate. And sometimes I say back to her, I don't want to meditate now. I meditate in my closet with the lights off when there's nothing really super interesting going on. This is a time I want to be mindful 
This is a time I want to fully associate with the contents of my consciousness. I want to be in, in fact, I don't want to be thinking about anything else other than what's going on right here, right now. I want to be fully immersed in this situation here. There's, I can always sort of unhitch from whatever's going on. I prefer to do that when I'm having a sad time or an angry time or maybe a bored time or something because then I can focus on the fact that that's not me. I'm just observing this stuff and I can short circuit that immediately. This, this to me is maybe one of the more important skills we need to teach children because it's one of the more important skills human beings need to have so we can put our best selves out there, right? You can bring the best version of yourself forward. So I, I take it that instilling these types of perspectives about meditation um, is not only important for the parent in conscious parenting, but also teaching the children. Can you talk a little bit about the role of meditation for the children in conscious parenting? Yeah. Yeah, I love it, Andy. Um, so there's a word in Sanskrit. Now, you may know about it, Mark. I'm not sure because of your wife, but it's called prana. I don't know and that word. She probably, I'm sure she would know it, but I, I bet she knows it. Yeah, it's a Sanskrit word and it means subtle life force energy. So, because what you're really tapping into is when we're in a meditative state, that state puts us in touch more with our life force energy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is associated with that is the breath, but it's subtler than the breath. So when the prana levels in the body are high, we feel happiness and lightness and positivity. And when those levels are low, that's when the sadness, the depression, what we would call like lower vibrational current, you know, that's when they begin to become our predominant experience of our day-to-day -day living. We can change how we feel during the day by changing our energy levels in the body. So that's one of the things that a conscious parent would be aware of when their children are going through various experiences, you know? So everybody has an idea of how they increase their energy or raise that vibrational current, that prana. We know about food as an energy source. We know about sleep and how important that is. We know about our breath. I mean, we can't live without it. I mean, we can't really live without any of these sources of energy. But I don't know if everybody's aware that this state of mind, what we call our conscious state of mind, of feeling that sense of peacefulness, happiness, that contentment is also another source of energy. So our consciousness is a source of energy. And like all of them, like we know with some meals leave us feeling heavy and actually we just want to take a nap, right? right? So they don't actually give us energy. We've all experienced sleeping too much right? And that we wake up exhausted right. or not sleeping enough and not sleeping enough is actually a sign. In fact, I'll just throw this in for any parents out there that children who don't sleep enough may present as if they have ADHD. Mm. So that's really interesting. The breath is our main source of prana and how long we can go without food and sleep is one thing, you know, sometimes days, maybe even longer. Um, but we can't go without our breath for more than maybe two minutes, sleep, you know, three minutes, something along those lines. But when the mind is filled with negative thoughts, we do become drained and tired and our prana goes down. So when the mind is more positive and peaceful and happy, it goes up and we feel more energetic. So our quality of life is actually determined by our state of consciousness, our state of mind. So by paying attention to all of these different approaches to how we get energized, we can completely transform the quality of our day-to-day -day lives. And the thing that we've observed about the mind is that the mind is always vacillating between the past and the future. So you just said, you know, to your wife, no, I want to be right here right now. Right. 
Yeah, of course you do, because that's the only place life is happening. And right. Everything's right there. Right here. Yes. But we tend to notice, I think everybody's probably noticed this, that your mind is taking you into the past or you're in the future. Right. It's very, you know, it's not so easy to just be right here, right now. And when the mind is in the future, what have you noticed are the feelings, the emotions that arise within. Right. We tend to be afraid, anxious, worried. What you might call in the Eastern tradition, suffering. Yes. So you do. You experience the suffering in both directions, yeah, actually. Right. Absolutely. So whether the mind is over there, and I think a lot of us have our minds worried about, you know, will I get that job or will I get into that right school, depending on the age of the child, you know, or will I get that, you know, great thing? So the mind is over there somewhere or we're in the past and we're regretting something that we, you know, should or shouldn't have done or wished we'd said or how we'd shown up. And so that evokes in and of itself that regret, the anger, the guilt. So when the mind is caught up in this constant vacillation between the past and the future, you know, what are you missing out on? The present. Right here, right now, right right here, right now, here, now, here, now, here, now. The one place that has any chance of being real. Exactly. And so how do we make the mind come into the present moment yeah, we, to handle it? We got to practice this. This is something I don't care how good you are at this stuff. We all get swept away, right? We all get swept away by emotion and things going on and we're all stuck in the past and in the future. I think the issue is, can you recognize that when it happens and, and sort of and, and press that pause button as I remarked yeah. about earlier? Yeah, I think that's a huge one to press the pause, but also to recognize I know we've all done this. If I say to my mind, stop it, stop it, just come here now, does that work? Not at all. No, no. That doesn't work either, right? So we know that however much you want to stop thinking about the pink elephant, you know, the green giraffe, whatever it is, your mind will not listen to you say, don't do that. And the more effort we put into that, the harder it becomes. So the link between our body and our mind is for us to realize that the only thing that connects those and brings us into the present moment is our breath. We, the best we can do here is recognize that thoughts are thoughts. Thoughts are like sounds and like sight and like taste and smell and all those other things. And that's different than the fact that you're conscious at all. Consciousness is always at peace. And that's the thing that people, I would love for them to get, that, that underneath the whole storm of emotion and whatever craziness or what we've called suffering, worrying about the past, stressing about the future, you're the observer. You're just conscious. That's, and, all, that's what's underneath it all. Yeah, my thought to this as well, kind of harkening back to the dialogue that we may have with our children in a parenting relationship or the dialogue we may have with our fellow adults, it seems like the same applies here for an inner dialogue, a dialogue with oneself. If I'm uh, constantly tormented by thoughts of the future, let's say because I'm feeling anxiety, certainly, as Catherine pointed out, just yelling at myself to stop thinking about the thing that's giving me the anxiety isn't going to work. Rather, having that dialogue of, oh, the reason my brain is telling, it's trying to tell me something. I there There's an underlying issue here that needs to be addressed. Is that fair? That's perfect. In fact... If you continue to think in the way that you just, again, you're really good at just creating the synopsis, Andy, that, you know, and I'd say this in my trainings all the time, whatever work we're working on with regard to the effectiveness of our communication with the people in our 
world around us applies just as much for the inner narrative. And how do I, as the observer of my inner world, how can I be with whatever's arising in the way in which it would like me to be with it? And so that inner dialogue work of being present to what is there rather than thinking, oh, it shouldn't be there or, you know, go away again, kind of like that same sort of conversation we were having with the outer like dimension, it doesn't work. And everything that's arising is arising for a reason. So if we become curious about it, and again, not identified with it, if we're curious about what's arising, every memory that arises is trying to tell us something. Again, it's like a little kernel. It's a breadcrumb along the way. It's leading us to an inner sense of knowingness. And it's helping us to become more present to those things that arise within us so that we can have a relationship with that in a way in which it feels like the message is, hey, whatever this is about, I'll be with you for as long as you need me to just the way you are. And that, of course, is the essence of self-acceptance is I can be with this. I don't necessarily act on it. I don't give it the keys to my car and let it drive me and my behaviors which of course is what happens when you're not centered, is that the strong emotions arise and it's not capable for you to be bigger than what's bugging you. So in the conscious parenting revolution, we talk about getting bigger than what's bugging you. Yeah, and it sounds like while you're talking about parenting, you're really talking about getting your own house in order first, right? Because if, totally. if you don't get your own house in order, there's no way you're going to help the kids get their houses in order or your <laughs> other friends or family members or whoever else, right? So again, even freedom, we talk about freedom in the live and let live movement. And, and generally we're speaking about external freedom, but freedom starts from internal, right? You have to be free from Absolutely. your own suffering. This is the place to start. And actually- for, for a lot of people, it is a revelation to say, I'm in charge of me, right? right? A lot of people don't start from right. that Right, totally. Yeah, that can be a radical statement. Some, you know, I say it differently when I do the summary sometimes. I say, I'm the unapologetic, iron-fisted dictator of me. I'm not asking anybody's permission. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you don't recognize it. I claim the right to be completely in charge of myself. And some people think this is such a radical statement. It, it, I don't know. Is it? It doesn't seem that radical to me. What are your thoughts on that, Catherine? We're, you know, I love this. This is a great conversation because in the training, I talk about victim blame consciousness. So if it weren't true, <laughs> Mark, that you were in charge of you, right. then you would have given the controls for you to someone out there. I'm on free. And then, and then you're the victim. Right. I'm on free right? to begin with. How, how am I, why am I talking about freedom if I haven't even endeavored to free myself? I'm simply a slave to whatever's arising. Absolutely. And I talk about, you know, this is all that interconnectedness because when we look at this idea of freedom, the freedom is then, so I will now be free to either agree with or not agree with the outer people in my life's perspectives as it relates to me and my behavior. So in that sense, and this is where I like to get really nuanced around the difference between self-centeredness and consideration of other people, because I think there's a really murky land out there and it's usually the principles that parents use to make their kids behave out of this idea that we have to train them to be good citizens. 
We need to train them to be good parts of society who have um, great values and are loving and considerate humans who walk the planet, of which I would agree completely. And that does not mean that we're a slave to what other people think about us. In fact, what other people think about me is none of my business. I want to throw something at you. This is something I did as a parent, and you might tell me I'm completely off my rocker here. Because I told my kids, you know what, guys? You don't have to share at all. You absolutely do not have to share. Your toys are your toys. And if you don't want to let anyone play with them, you don't have to. And every dispute, you know the disputes I'm talking about, they're, the two hands and they're, they're wrestling, I would just resolve the same way. Hold on, hold on. Who's, who owns that thing? Okay, I do. Why are your hands on this person's thing? And so first they love that, right? This was really great. I don't have to share. I can be completely self-centered and acting totally in my self-interest. I say always act in your self-interest. But I let them discover something very important, that sharing actually is in your self-interest because you want to use so-and-so's toy. In fact, sometimes you got to, you know, as a parent, you got to grease the skids a little bit. So I'd, if they didn't want to share, sometimes I'd make a nice toy for the other person. This another person you didn't want to share with. Now they've got a great toy that you definitely want to use. And I let them discover for themselves that there's nothing in contradiction at all with acting in your own self-interest while also acting in the self-interest of another person. We call this a win-win agreement. And I try never to do anything that's not in my self-interest because I know I can synergize with another person and do more than I could ever do myself. Then I try to find things that are in the interest of the other person that's also in my interest. And then we work together on things. And then we can continually do deals over and over again because we struck a real win-win. Was I out of line teaching my parent and teaching my kids no, you don't I have mean, to share? And what, what happens when we teach them you have to share? What have I said to them about the nature of their property that they own? I love it. I This is something I talk about because I always use the example of as an adult, if you want me to share my beautiful jewelry, you know, good luck. Like, I'm not going to do it. Right. So why would we take what is that treasured thing of a child that, you know, precious toy or what have you and think that they have to share that, too? Yeah. And so oftentimes I will say that there's actually some really great literature on this. And Dr. Alice Miller, who is one of my heroes, she talked about when parents force children to share perfunctorily, they're actually not teaching them to share from within yes. where that compunction yes. to do so where it's real, it's like where it's real. Yeah. It's coming from like a have to place. Right. And that, you know, she said, if you allow, you know, when, when the apples ripe, it falls from the tree. And the same thing is true when the developmental stage arises, it will arise. And that place from within where I actually want to share with you will come from within the child if you allow it. Mm -hmm. And if you get in the way of it too early, then the place that the sharing comes comes from isn't that heartfelt place. Right. And it also doesn't supply the child with the capability of knowing when it's okay to say, I'll share these things, but not these yes, things. Yes, you're in charge. And I don't feel bad about not sharing these things because I also value what's important to me as much as I value my need to also take into consideration what's important to us. So Marshall Rosenberg, who was the founder for the Center for Nonviolent Communication and one of my trainers, he used to talk about emotional development stages one, two, and three. So emotional development stage one is that stage in which he called it emotional slavery. 
And emotional slavery is where you've convinced someone they're responsible for how you feel. Oh, yes. He makes me so happy. This one, they yeah. come into my office all the time. She makes me so upset. He makes me so yeah. upset. I said, oh, I didn't know they were in charge of you. They look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. Yeah. If you give someone the power to either make you happy or sad. Right. Then you've given your power away to the other. 100%. And that case, it's it's a victim you know, mm-hmm. consciousness yeah. where the other is always the one I blame on how I feel as if I wasn't responsible yeah, for it. You're a dependent here. Yeah. And, and he says, so that's stage one. So then if you want to develop to stage two, stage two is emotional obnoxiousness, where you're basically saying, you know, F you, I'm not responsible for how you feel. And he said, that's a complete overreaction Mm -hmm. to this other state of mind. And there's still guilt around the fact that you feel as though, oh, gosh, you know, I should be responsible for how you feel. I still feel like it's my job. He said, stage three is emotional liberation. And that's where we should all be heading. And that's where it's like, you know, I'm not responsible for how you feel. You're the only one who can be responsible for that. But I care about you and I can see you're suffering. Right. And so I'm not doing this out of duty or obligation or it's my job, but I'm doing it because your relationship is important to me and how you're doing matters to me. So I can see you're having difficulty. You know, how about a coffee? You want to sit down? Is there anything I could do to support you right now coming from that place of love and compassion for another being on the planet Yes. with this consciousness of we all belong to each other? We're not in a vacuum, but that's not to be confused with I somehow am responsible for you and how you're feeling. That's not my job. That's your job. We want to keep it real. Keep it legitimate at all times. I want to see if I can push you a little bit because. I think I got your agreement on this idea that you don't have to share. If we want them to share, it's got to be for the right reasons. It's not a forced sharing type of a thing. Well, in the Live and Let Live movement, we talk about voluntary kindness all the time. Not forced kindness, right? That's not really kindness. That's not real charity. And so, well, Andy and I, and, and really, I think everybody in the Live and Let Live movement feels that, yeah, there are less fortunate people on the planet, and we do want to help them. We want to give them access to a good education and access to health care and access to lots of things, it's got to be real. It can't mm-hmm. be forced. So what that means is when the government says, we're going to take your money, whether you like it or not, and spend it on something we actually happen to agree is a good thing, we in the Live and Let Live movement would say, you know what, we're against that. Because you don't get to violate the rule. You're taking somebody's money without their permission. We shouldn't forget about that part. That you called it taxation doesn't change anything. You're still taking somebody's money, whether they like it or not, and spending it on a great thing. We're all focused on the great thing. But that isn't real. That you formed a group big enough to have the power to do that either (laughs) does not excuse Absolutely true. This is why... We need to get our good moral views, the ones we're pushing with our moral principle, the be a good human stuff, out of the law. This is because if we don't do that now, we get what we have now, which is an endless struggle between people in different groups with different opinions who are each competing to try to get control of the big 900-pound gorilla, the government in the in the room, to enforce their moral views on other people. And we got to be big enough to step back from that and say, even though we agree with those moral views, we don't want to enforce them on people like that for exactly the reasons we don't want to force the kids to share. 
Yeah, I mean, these are such interesting questions. I haven't spent as much time thinking about it in that big macro view. I mean, I can tell you that um, when I look at this idea of government enforced, um, I guess, social welfare systems. Yes. Right? Ch- charity so it, in the legal world is what I would what I would call it. It's yeah, forced, charity, in forced charity. Earlier in the conversation, one of my favorite things to point out is people in a day-to-day basis in most of their interactions with other individuals, this stuff seems so obvious. It seems self-evident. Yeah. It seems... It seems morally correct, and where we lose a lot of people is when people start forming groups and imposing their will because they have more power on others. All we're asking for, really, is moral consistency. Yeah, across the board, no matter who's acting. I like to call them the kindergarten rules. Remember when we all went back to kindergarten and the rule was, uh, keep your hands off the other kids and don't take their toys without their permission? I still think those are good rules. And that even if all of the kids in the class kind of got together and voted on it and said, we're going to take this kid's toy. Is that the right answer to say, well, sorry, the majority of people have decided uh, to take your toy without your permission. No, I don't think that changes a thing. Nor would it change anything in the analysis if all the other kids uh, got more pleasure out of it than the one person would have gotten out of it. Nor does it change anything if you say to the kid, well, you could go to another class or something. (laughs) I mean, that's that's (laughs) not If you don't like this class, you can get out. Yeah, I think we need to stand up for what's right across the board, right? It's the exact same reason we stand up for First Amendment rights, right? Because, you know, Andy, and I are not confused about the right to free speech. And so we seek out the most offensive content of speech that might be at risk of being censored by the government. That's an important point. The more abhorrent, the more we want the case. Yeah, we are very much against the principle that the government should censor or affect the content of anybody's speech. Now, if a private person wants to do, if you come to my house, you don't get to just say anything you want. We have a certain level of maybe decorum that we would expect or civility or something. And because we get to be the iron fisted dictators of our place, or maybe my wife gets to be the iron fisted dictator of our place, we can say, look, you don't get to say that in our house. And that's perfectly fine. We need to understand these very important differences. We've talked about the sharing issue, Mark Victor, the parents' uh, radical decision to instruct his children they don't have to share. We've talked about the um, the dichotomy of uh, punishment versus realizing um, that there's a dialogue to be had and that your child and their behavior is really trying to engage in, in informing you about their, their well-being. Both of these seem to kind of run a little bit contrary, perhaps, to conventional wisdom on parenting, and that kind of stuff really interests me. So I guess, where else does uh, conscious parenting diverge from this more traditional conventional wisdom for, about parenting? Yeah. So, I mean, these are all such really, I mean, really interesting conversations around the idea of government and governmental systems and, you know, dominant cultures and how those dominant cultures affect societal norms. So I guess, you know, we started our conversation talking about autonomy Mm -hmm. and autonomy needs. So when I talk about, you know, the manifestation of the unmet need, understanding underlying unmet needs, of course, most everybody's heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and these different levels of needs that emerge within us internally as we begin to, <clears throat> in our day-to-day lives, meet our needs for, you know, the basic needs, food, air, water, sleep, and then they move up to psychological needs for safety and security, as well as, you know, our physical needs for safety and security. And then 
we move to the emotional needs, which are things like belonging and autonomy. And our belonging needs, we all know that we have this incredibly deep sense of needing to belong. It drives our behavior mm -hmm. and we're a hurting species and all the rest of it. And that need to belong is so strong that in families, often children's needs to belong are, for the most part, I'd say the statistic is around 70% of children are more leaning toward wanting to please and wanting to belong then they are leaning toward their needs for self-determination and autonomy. However, the children that lean toward wanting to belong need to know it's okay to speak up and rock the boat, that it's all right to have a voice, even if it's contrary to the family voice, even if it's contrary to the friends on the playground's voice, that they, and it takes cultivating because, because of the psychological differential between a child and an adult, the child's always at the disadvantage when they're surrounded by adults or even strong alpha kids on the playground are like an adult that they'll kowtow or they will defer to them even when they may have an inner voice inside that's like, you know, that wasn't very nice or that wasn't the right thing to do. Um, you know, that was th that did harm. You know, we don't talk to our fellow man like that behind their back and cultivate, you know, bullying type behavior, things of that nature. Can somebody who's the observer have the strength to stand up? I would say not without cultivating it, not without giving them permission to rock the boat. So that would be where I would say with those kids that are easy to raise because they care so much about what other people think about them, they're not prepared to risk being approved of in order to be a stand for what they think is right. So that's where I would bring that into conscious awareness in this conversation, as well as these kids that are prepared, you know, we call these defiant oppositional kids that are, you know, hard to raise. These are the kids that are prepared to risk disapproval regularly in order to be self-determined. And those are the kids that are more often than not the ones that are sent to their room not allowed to go out to recess, are constantly in trouble because they can't get the right balance between asserting their own sense of self and rightness around what they want to do and balancing the needs of, well, there's more than one need in the room. Everybody has also the sense of how do we as a group work together. So these are kids that are already really in touch with their own sense of self they need to become more like aware that, oh my God, look, there are other people in the room. You know, we need to work together. So each one is equally important. And for parents, it's hard for them to raise those autonomous children because society wants everybody to be concerned about what other people think of them and to regulate their behavior on the basis of the group's expression of what they like and what they don't like. And so it's hard for parents to be like, okay with their children asserting themselves because kids will often say and point out the white elephant in the room. And that's a behavior that's not generally appreciated. Yeah. You know, I always felt as a parent that, you know, try to get as clear as you can with the boundaries, right? And for me, it was always property rights boundaries. And so, you know, I told my kids, they were free to absolutely believe anything they wanted. I can remember one time when my kids were young, 
um, my one of my neighbors was very, very religious in a certain religion, and that we were talking about her religious views. And I remember she said to me one time, Mark, I'm going to take your kids to my, you know, house of worship one time and, and, you know, teach them about everything we believe. And I said, fantastic. You're welcome to take them anytime. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, I'm just curious. Do you think it's okay if I spoke to your kids about what I believe? And she said, absolutely not. And I said, see, that, <laughs> I said to me, this is, this is the issue we should be discussing. Now, that didn't mean I thought my kids could do anything they wanted. I, they, my kids were very clear about my property, right? Like, for example, they may own uh, the video game, and that's fine. It's their video game. They can do whatever they want. But they were all very aware of the fact that I own the electricity, and that I, I own the house. And so I had rules in the house. And if they didn't want to follow the rules in the house, well, they could live somewhere else. I mean, I wasn't confused about that. I have obligations to my kids. But I told them my obligations were to keep them alive. So you have food that maybe you don't enjoy very much or enough water to keep you alive. And I got to get you to school and get you the proper clothing. But I don't have to get you the jeans you want. I don't have to take you for ice cream. I don't have to do any of these things. If you want that stuff from me, well, then you got to reach a win-win with me. I got certain things I want to do. You got certain things you want to do. And we kind of negotiated and talked about it. I dealt with them. I felt like I sort of prepared them to find win-win agreements. And I told them, I'm very easy to get done. Anything you want to get done, show me a win-win. And so they would come to me and say, well, I want to do this. And I know you don't really want me to do this, but, but what if I did that? And I know you want me to do that. If I did that, could I do this? And we'd, we'd negotiate an arm's length deal. And as soon as we got to a deal, that was, <laughs> that was a win-win on any particular issue. I can remember my son, Braden, when he was a real, you know, really young, I was probably like four or five. And I would say, Braden, you know, don't do that or whatever. And he said, well, what's going to happen if I do it? You know, he wanted to know what's, what's going to be the consequence because he may decide the consequence is not enough to deter him from doing the thing. So I think this idea of rationally thinking about what's your property and what kind of agreements you make with people. And then, of course, I would always do my best to hold them to their word. If you made a deal, I would expect you follow the deal. Maybe you made a bad deal. But the same was true with me. Sometimes I make a deal I didn't like and wish, wish I could get out of. I think what we're talking about here is getting kids ready for prime time, right? We're, we're, we're not, it's not, to me, it wasn't really special rules about being a kid. It was, I'm teaching you how to get along in the world and how to be successful. There are certain things, there are certain ways of acting and certain principles that over time we've seen, if you act consistently with these principles, you do well. It's actually in your self-interest. What do you think, Catherine? Is engaging in business transactions with your children <laughs> consistent with conscious parenting? <laughs> Well, you know, a couple of things come up in this conversation. Again, you know, I love your um, candor, Mark, about your parenting approach. So there's a difference between an authoritarian yeah. who says, you know, do this or this is what's going to happen to you. These are the consequences. Right. And so that approach, which it sounds like that was part of your parenting. I'm an authoritarian about my stuff for sure. I'm not confused about what I own. I'm in charge of me and my stuff and what I do and my money and all of that. They were not confused about that. Right. So there's that approach which uses a, around, again, you know, how do I get them to respect my stuff is yeah. what I'm kind of hearing you say. And so there are a couple of schools of thought. And one of the schools of thought is I get them to appreciate it because if they don't, this is what I'm going to do to them. And so that's commonly known as the use of consequences. And on the basis of the consequence, that's the thing that gets them to act the right way. 
So that isn't actually the conscious parenting revolutions approach, because again, that's an external locus of causality. You get people to do what you want them to do because you're afraid if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen to me, right? Or if I, I do do it. So it's on the basis, like we use the consequences, the lever, and they get afraid and the cornerstone is based on dependency and fear. Well, I'm not so sure consequences is quite the right word. It is probably in a macro sense, but these are things like I might not want to do something with my time. And if you want me to do something with my time that I don't want to do, well, then here are some things that I want. You can do this and get that result. You can do this and get that result. This isn't that you better do it my way or else I'm going to send you to your room. It's if you want me to do something more than I'm required to do with my stuff, well, we may be able to find a win-win in there somewhere. So I think people do act on the basis of incentives. I expect people will act in their self-interest. I certainly want my kids to act in their self-interest. I'm just looking for ways to align the self-interest together. But that's what I, I do the exact same thing with adults. I do it in my business life and in my personal life. And, you know, I found for me that oftentimes there are win-win deals. If I can't get a win-win, I just simply pass. I say, well, I'm not interested in engaging in that deal. So, so the shift around, um, mo- this is a big conversation around motivation. Yeah. And so the, the idea is that when we move away from rewards, punishments, the use of consequences to evoke changes in behavior, we move away from this idea of power over to power with. Mm-hmm. So power over is you know, going to activate retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. So the use of rewards and punishments is going to activate retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. A reward, believe it or not, is just as deteriorous as a punishment because withholding a reward to someone who was hoping they would get it if they met the hoops that you told them to jump through and they think they did and you think they didn't and now you withhold the thing you promised if they had done it, if you withhold that, the withholding is experienced by that person just as a punishment is. Well, it may, it so, may be, a, to me, this is a factual question about whether the contract was performed, right? If I say, hey, clean you, and I, I say, look, if you you want me to, hey, dad, will you, will you drive me here this weekend? I say, well, I don't know. Well, they say, well, what if I'll clean my room or I'll do something else in, in exchange for that? And I'll say, yeah, that sounds like a good deal for me and they actually clean their room and I don't drive them, well, I think I've violated the contract at that point. They should have a reason to be upset with me. But if they didn't clean their room, they didn't uh, satisfy the terms of our agreement. And so I don't feel any obligation to drive them. Catherine's point, get, however, gets at the difference between how you interpret clean and how right. your child yes. interprets clean. This is an important But it issue. actually gets to a slightly different overall part of this conversation, which is really around this idea of internal versus external locus of causality and whether we motivate people by the promise of this is what I'll do for you if you do that. If you clean your room, I'll take you to the party. That whole idea transactionally versus this idea that we don't buy behaviors but we create an atmosphere in which what is the normal state of being is able to arise. We talked about that with regard to sharing, right? We don't enforce sharing as a rule, but if you allow someone to develop normally, there will be within them as a normal part of the development, this idea that it brings me pleasure to share. Isn't that the reward? Pleasure. But isn't that well, the reward? But that's an internal reward. You're talking about things like if you clean the room, I'll take you to the party. And I'm shifting it to if you create an atmosphere in your home 
then the desire for me to clean my room and participate comes from within, not because I get a goodie. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that as well. Okay, so we're, I think we're languaging it a little bit differently, but maybe we're both saying the same thing, although it sounded slightly different. I think people act in their self-interest. And I think that, you know, you have to spend some time thinking about what actually is in your self-interest. What is it you want? I think these are decisions that people who are in charge of themselves get to decide. I, I often say you get to define your happiness as well as pursue your happiness. Right? I don't get to tell you what makes you happy. You don't get to tell me what makes me happy. You get to figure that out for yourself. And then I think people should be encouraged to act within the realm of, of peaceful conduct, right? I mean, if they violate what we call the live and let live legal principle, if you're an aggressor, well, sorry, we don't um, we don't have to try to persuade you not to do that. We can use force to stop you from doing that. We don't try to necessarily persuade the thief from not stealing our stuff. We may try, but if he still tries to steal our stuff, we have every right to use force to stop him from doing that. I mean, I think that Maybe it's a fact that you get to try to persuade within a certain realm, but if you cross that aggression threshold, I would say, at that point, we don't care what you think anymore. We're not going to let you aggress by force if necessary. And this applies to adults and kids. And in my house, look, if you're pounding on your sister, I don't have to wait to try to convince you to stop. I'm going to pull you off and stop you. You don't get to be an aggressor regardless of how you think. So we talk about force in two ways. One is the protective use of force. Yeah. Okay. So in the example you gave, stopping someone to protect the person from getting pummeled to death would be the protective use of force. And you're doing it and using your force in order to protect someone from being hurt. That's the only time I would be in favor of force is in a response to aggression. So the protective use of force is concerned with protecting harm from being done. Mm -hmm. You can have the protective use of force in many different situations to protect someone's reputation from being damaged is another use of the protective use of force compared to I'm going to use my force to command obedience and compliance. Well, this sounds like being an aggressor. Right. So this just to add a little bit of my kind of language around this conversation of how do I use force? Do I use it to enforce obedience and compliance? As a parent, a lot of people have this attitude of power differential commands. I'm the parent. You do it because I said so. So it's because of this idea that I have power as a result of that role as the parent or I'm the teacher or I'm the manager or because of that, I think that I can make people behave. And so we use power in that way, and that evokes retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. Or I use my power for protection, to protect someone from being harmed, and there are millions of situations where the reason or the energy behind it is to protect, not to enforce compliance because I have power. Therefore, it really doesn't activate the three R's, Yep. right? So then we go back to this idea of, you know, let's go back to, well, we have an agreement and you do it or else. That we're now into the land of motivation, self-motivation versus outer motivation, creating atmospheres within family systems or getting in the way of an atmosphere from being created because we start to use the things that activate the three R's. So for example, Marshall Rosenberg talks about in his book on nonviolent communication, a language for life. And he talks about you know, what was it that was going on in my family in Detroit, Michigan in the wintertime where my kids would argue about whether or not they could go down and clean Mrs. Jones's driveway, but I couldn't get 
anybody to go outside and shovel the snow in our driveway. And that got me thinking. It got me thinking about things like motivation. What had happened in my family in which what we call self-started behavioral change wasn't happening where they were self-started wanting to make that contribution, but it was happening down the road. They were fighting over going to help Mrs. Jones. Like, what is this about? What were they getting when they shoveled Mrs. Jones' driveway? They, they were getting something that in what we are going to call the internal satisfiers. Okay. Mrs. Jones was handicapped. Mm. And when they would go down and shovel her driveway, she was so appreciative. And they felt so good about their contribution. Maybe that's what they were missing from shoveling your driveway. They weren't feeling precisely. Yes, and that's absolutely. what that's what Rosenberg discovered was that when you make those things within your house perfunctory jobs, have tos, yes, you I, get in the way of the natural flow where people and the urgent desire to make a contribution, which is a natural. It's actually what he was called the highest need. Yeah, there's no win win there. Make, but, to make a contribution. But appreciation from somebody seems external to me. Yep. How is that not external? It seems like a win In order for somebody to develop an internal locus of wanting to do good for others or wanting to make their bedroom, if they were to make their bedroom and every time their parent uh, saw a perfectly clean room, they said, this looks awful, they're not going to develop that locus. They need to, it seems like some external reward even if it's in subtle satisfaction from the parent is necessary here where am i where am i missing to me just to add on to that to me that's a win-win right if you shovel my driveway i'm going to appreciate the fact that you did that maybe i'll be motivated to drive you to the party or whatever like that i'm wondering if you see it as using force by simply saying well i'm not motivated to do this or that something i'm not required to do as a parent um right now but if you were to do this, then I'm motivated to do that because I, to me, that's how life works. My employees have to be motivated to come to work. I have to pay them a salary to come to work. That's what our agreement is. And so I think they should all act in their self-interest. I act in my self-interest. What I don't want to do and what I Hold hear let, you saying is Catherine, you better do it or else. Yeah, let Catherine respond to that. I yeah. want to know why satisfaction, for, like in the example that you gave with the handicapped woman who was so appreciative, how is that not an external locus that's motivating and allows them to develop an internal motivation? Okay, so let's talk about that issue. So to me, what you're talking about and you're entering through this door, the side door, the door that leads to the difference between praise versus acknowledgement. Okay, so it seems like what we're into is into this idea that if you praise someone, you'll get more of the praised activity, right? And if you don't praise them, you'll get less of the praised activity. And now we're back in the land of rewards and punishments because it's on the basis of that idea that what we pay for, whether it's through the reward of praise or whether we give them, you know, something like a trinket or money for grades or some other thing that the thing that we give them, and you talked about money to your employees. When we talk about that nexus, when we go into the corporate world, it's a slightly different dynamic than a family system because in the family system, we don't really want to cultivate that you pay for cleaning your room. Yeah. or you pay for my love, or you pay for my acknowledgement, or you pay for, because that's a major distortion of a family system yeah. where it becomes a transaction. Yeah, fair but point. the difference between praise and acknowledgement 
is with acknowledgement, you're saying to someone, I'm proud for you, not I'm proud of you. Ah. Right. You can say things like I in the verb, I and I admire, I respect that, you know, I see that you put a lot of work in this and that you've, you know, you've gotten a really um, outstanding project. Congratulations. And here's the difference between verifying and highlighting and acknowledging. Verifying, highlighting, and acknowledging actually supports what we call the development of someone's self-understanding. You're reflecting back to them. I see what you've done also. I agree with you. I, I would be proud as well. I can see why you're so proud of yourself. That is a completely different development of a sense of self than what we call those, oh, I'm so proud of you. You, um, you did so well. Here's a goodie, good girl, good boy. All of that is this other idea of developing that other sense of self based on what other people think about me. So we've kind of gone full circle back to this idea of, do I feel good about myself when other people feel good about me? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so my entire sense of self is based on the other's perception of me, or am I capable of being able to tune into, I put a lot of work in, I've been really struggling with math or science or spelling or whatever, you know, and I know it's only a C, but I brought my grade up from a D and I feel so proud of myself for that. Now it's not comparing myself to Judy, Jane, or John who are screaming with A's and straight A's over there for which if I compared myself to them, I would always feel bad about me. And then I'm always basing my sense of how good I feel about me based on how I measure up with other people in the class, right? So that's the socially prescribed sense of whether I feel good about me. So socially prescribed perfectionism is dysfunctional form versus self-reference. Well, I'm, I'm very satisfied with how you just answered the question, uh, my question, which is basically it seems like the proper parental response when the child does something that's healthy for them or productive or, or you've deemed good is to put the focus on the development of the child, yeah. on, on the fact that the yeah. child has just developed in their self rather than putting the focus on the transaction, uh, the transactional nature of what you may have gained out of their good act. Is that fair? Perfectly. I mean, Andy, you're great at recapping. I've been knocking them out of the park all day. <laughs> all day, man. You have just one, you know, you're just boom, you know. Boom, you've got this down. If you ever it's need like an that. annotated version of any of you, you want me to just condense it down. This has been such a great discussion. It's got us way out of our lane. I also like how she just put the uh, focus on my personal development rather than what she got out of it. <laughs> you have got this. You have nailed this. We are out of time, but what a wonderful conversation. Fun conversation, been. yeah. Catherine, um, before we let you go, we're going to make you plug whatever you have to plug. We know you've done TED Talks. Oh. We know you've got a website. Um, whatever yeah. you want to throw out, we'll put some links. Go ahead. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you guys so much. So um, I think I would throw the link out for the Conscious Parenting Revolution. So people who would like to go there, I actually have a needs assessment analysis that you can take because when we begin to focus on the underlying needs and whether those are met or not met, we begin to see the gaps in where we're meeting our needs on a daily basis that are giving rise to how we feel, which often gives rise to how we behave. So if we're seeing within ourselves behaviors that we don't like within ourselves, then we start with, well, are you meeting your needs? And if you're not, like, what are the unmet needs? And the more you get clear about that, the more you can begin to wonder, well, I wonder how I can meet my needs. And as you begin to do that, you begin to change how you feel. 
So the emphasis is on how do we meet our needs and those underlying awarenesses of what our unmet needs are. So all feelings, right? Those are like just the, the light on the dashboard. They're just like, oh, wow, look at that light. It's flashing over here. It's telling me warning, warning, you know, you got to get the oil fixed or you got to go for this. Or you got to go for that. It's just guiding us in the right direction. So we'd spoken before about the role of feelings and feelings are not something to be afraid of or uh, worried about. They're just information. They're sources of information, but it's when we identify with them that they become dangerous, mm-hmm. no matter what the feeling is. No question, yeah. no question about yeah, that. It's yeah. that shift in consciousness. And so, p- people yeah. who meditate, and, and if you're not meditating, let me make my little plug here. This is something that could really be a big ad in your life that might require 10 minutes a day or something like that to get started. It's not easy. It's not necessarily relaxing. It can be a lot of work. It can be very frustrating. But man, for people who don't know what we're talking about here, when we talk about identifying with thoughts and being the observer, this is your invitation to really look into it. I don't know if you you have an app that you like. I like, uh, I use Waking Up with Sam Harris, one of my favorite meditation app. So anyway, I wanted to put that plug in there. All right. Sounds good. We're going to put a bunch of links for Catherine uh, at the bottom of the screen and encourage each one of you to just go through her entire repertoire and look at every single thing that Catherine Celery has ever done in her life because it's all very insightful. And I have loved this conversation, Catherine, so much. Thank you so much for being here. We had so much fun. Andy, Mark, this has been amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed this. You guys are great to be with. Thank you so much. We're going to take it out. We always bring the shaka. So if you want to blast off with the Shaka with us. That'd be great. Everybody go check out liveandletlive.org. Until next time, we're the Peace Radicals. Peace! Peace.